We are visiting with Baylor professor Perry Glanzer about his book, Christianity and Moral Identity in Higher Education. And as we start off before we delve in too deeply, why don't you just tell us in a nutshell uh, what this book's about and why you chose to write it? Sure. Um, Basically, our thesis is that universities in the past used to seek to form the whole person. But because of moral disagreements, what we're seeing is what we call less than human moral education. Universities still try to engage in moral education, but they only focus on little aspects of a person. Okay. Well, why don't we delve into it? You know, it's interesting. You're writing as someone who has been involved at a Christian university in religious education for a number of years. I thought it was interesting that you started off by uh, quoting from and referencing Animal House, a movie that one doesn't necessarily think <laughs> of when, uh, you know, when thinking about Christian universities. Uh, how, tell us how that uh, came about and what point, broader point you're making with that. Basically, it came about in reference to an old quote that was really the typical position of ancient universities from a uh, thinker named Erasmus. He says, if trees or wild beasts grow, men, believe me, are fashioned. If this fashioning be neglected, you have but an animal still. And the basic point is that you have to form human beings. And universities have always had trouble with students, wild students. Um, Animal House is no exception. They used to write about it, even in the 13th and 14th century, how students were out partying and getting around on town and make, you know, carrying arms and making use of them. So this isn't something new. But what we said is, actually, Animal House is no longer, it's, you could say, almost passe in that in Animal House, the dean, although unsuccessful, still tried to humanize the students in some way. Mm-hmm. But today, that's uh, less and less uh, is that occurring. For example, David Brooks uh, interviewed some Princeton administrators recently, and they said, you know, really, we don't make an effort to try and form the character of students. This is an exact quote, but almost the idea that, you know, they're adults, that's on them, we can't, we can't change them? Yes, I mean, that's the basic mindset is, no, I mean, we're here to baby try and help them become professionals, but we just let them decide the rest of their life. Whereas the old tradition of the university is, no, I mean, they still need formation as they're animals in some sense, and the living in an animal house, and they still need formation. Whereas there's a University of Chicago professor who recently was speaking to freshmen. He says, well, we kind of let you come here as animals in a wildlife sanctuary, and we hope for the best. Um, <laughs> a little different sort of mentality. Yeah. How have things changed? How long has that been taking place? Well, it's been taking place actually over the last couple hundred years, although even as late as in the eight, 1870s when the first research university that most people identify as John Hopkins University, when it came about, the president gave a speech in which he said, well, we know there's lots of controversy about what universities should do, but he did say there's these certain things we should agree on, upon. He enlisted 10, and one of them, he said, is the university should try to form character, should try to make men. So it's a fairly recent, and that only in about the past 130 years, because of our moral disagreements, we don't agree on what a flourishing or good human being is. As a result attention to this topic slowly drifted away from the curriculum. Was it almost a fight that a lot of people just didn't want to have, or was there a real sense that, hey, this isn't our job, or has that changed somehow over time? I think of both of those things you mentioned. One is some people, scientists in particular, with the rise of science said, well, this isn't our job. Our job is to teach people about what is, or not what ought to be. And then there are many faculty who also said, well, this isn't our job either. We really, our job is to perhaps teach a particular subject matter or teach people how to be a a good accountant. It has nothing to do with ethics or forming human beings. And so that's been part of the 
trend as well. And so as a result, they kicked it out into what we now call the co-curricular, and it's no longer in the curriculum. We hear a lot about liberal arts. You know, liberal arts education is, you know, very important. Was character once considered part of a quote-unquote liberal arts education that now we use the term liberal arts, but character formation, moral foundation isn't part of that? Absolutely. I mean, that is p part of the reason is uh, the liberal arts began to mean more and more just focusing on sort of technical expertise. Critical thinking became the mantra versus um, thinking about what does it mean to live a good life. Uh, there's been a change. Also, the rise of professional schools has had an important uh, influence on this area and that, okay, we want to make good professionals, and so that's the focus versus good human beings. Well, you talk about the idea of less than human, so I'd like to maybe explore that a, a little bit more. You know, that's almost a, a strong charge when you really think about it, less than human education. Go over a little bit again uh, what that means and how you, why you use that term as part of your central thesis that a lot of colleges are offering, less than human education. Yes. Perhaps the best way to talk about it is a conversation I recently had with a graduate who said, you know, college really didn't prepare me for marriage or personal managing my money or finances, um, even thinking about my vocation. It largely focused on just knowledge. And that's what we mean really by less than human education. It only seeks to form one part of a human being, usually professional competence, instead of exploring what does it mean to be a good citizen? What does it mean to be a good husband or wife, a good father or mother, a good uh, son or daughter, a good neighbor, a good, um, just all those other aspects of our human being, even a you know, good uncle or aunt. I saw mm -hmm. a book recently that was published called Aunt, Anting or Auntie, you could say. It's about what does it mean to be a good uh, aunt or uncle? Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, or is there a, a school of thought these days where parents or students or whomever might say, I'm paying X five figures per year to send my school, kid to school. I want him to get a diploma and a job, and anything else is icing on the cake? Absolutely. And I must admit, part of this comes, also comes from the fact that if you send your son or daughter to a state school, and you think, I just want them to get professional training, there is that emphasis. And also, I don't want ideology brought in to the classroom. Uh, a recent book by a former professor named Stanley Fish who talks about save the world on your own time. And his basic point is this, stick to just teaching your subject, subject matter, stick to perhaps if it's English, teaching a, my son or daughter, you know, a student how to write. Don't um, go into all these other ideological charge directions. So there, that's part of the reason as well. How do you start bringing all this together? Can, can, can you build consensus on this with so many different types of universities and viewpoints? Well, actually, that, the point of our book is that you really can't build consensus. In fact, they tried to earlier in the history of the university, and this is really why uh, morality was marginalized, as one scholar says, is because they tried to find this sort of universal vision of good character. And we argue you really can't. Um, there are going to be different visions based on religion, philosophy, and other foundational beliefs about what does it mean to be a good human being. And so our suggestion is that, well, you need to allow these different visions to flourish, and then we can see, uh, wait, well, I don't know if I want to go. <laughs> okay, let's just maybe, okay. uh, let, me, let me continue. That you want to allow these different visions to flourish at different, for example, Christian colleges and universities, instead of trying to find some little thin vision of what it means of human flourishing. 
But you said, you know, there's some consensus for the ideas that, you know, rigor, rigorous scholarship, curiosity, respect for your fellow human beings, you know, things like that. I think most universities are going to agree on, but it seems like once you, you get beyond that, there there's not a whole lot of agreement, and even those don't necessarily say a whole lot about how you actually treat the people around you or live your life, do they? Yes, you're going to, I think you can find, for example, one of the examples we cited in the book was at Colorado State University. They try to gather their student development folks around to talk about, okay, what is a vision of good character? What are the character qualities upon which we can agree? And they actually did find, a, you know, a number of character qualities upon which they agree that we thought we can try to encourage in our students. You know, things like that you mentioned, for example, uh, honesty or truthfulness or compassion. However, they still also had disagreements. They talked about how pride, is that a virtue or vice? Well, certain students' groups said, well, you've got to have pride. And others said, well, no, this is a vice. And so this is where uh, you're going to find some disagreements. So you're saying that this, uh, you know, some of this consensus really can't be built. It, it is, no, you can find it at a platitude level, but mm-hmm. then if you talk about, well, what justifies, what are the reasons why we think good character is important? For example, why is it important to forgive? Then you're gonna, going to start, people are going to appeal to what we call your larger worldview or meta-narratives, uh, mm-hmm. stories that help justify why you think certain virtues are important or certain vices are dangerous. Christianity, we have a lot of stories that, you know, stories, parables, Bible stories that offer, a, you know, an example of why we, you know, believe what we do, why we believe certain things are of sound character. Is there anything like that in the humanistic, you know, in, in, in a secular tradition? Well, actually, there are. Really, every, for example, I my earlier book on the quest for Russia's soul, mm-hmm. I examined communist moral education versus Christian moral education. What happened was, after the fall of communism, Russian educators were looking for a substitute, and so they asked some Christian educators to come come over there and train their teachers in Christian moral education. So I asked them, well, what uh, were some similarities and differences? And a number of them pointed to, they had stories in Russia that justified some of the same common moral teachings, you know, honor or respect your parents. Mm -hmm. However, they also noted some important differences. For example, they said, in communism, we never heard stories or we never heard an emphasis upon forgiveness, which I thought was you know, quite profound, whereas in Christianity, that's really a central virtue, yeah. but yet for communism, it was completely missing. Interesting. You know, at Baylor University, we're examining what, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian, you know, continually examining what it means to be a Christian university and a Baptist university. Is really what you're saying an argument for that continued examination, you know, whether it's Baylor or whether it's BYU or whether it's, uh, you know, a Methodist college to examine who we are and why we do what we do constantly? Yes, in fact, part of the what we did in the book is we went and looked at, uh, we studied 150 different Christian colleges and universities, and then narrowed our sample down to really the about a dozen c- Christian colleges and universities that we really thought were exemplary mm-hmm. in their approach to moral education. What is it that characterized their approach? And one of the things we noted w- was that in all these schools, there was a, or most, I shouldn't say all of them, but in a number of them, there was this emphasis upon their identity, uh, their perhaps particular denominational identity and the Christian identity, exploring it, asking questions, usually addressing major issues in light of the Christian narrative. We see that at Baylor's Hand Camera School of Business. I mean, locally a good example. I think, are you familiar with the the medical humanities program here at Baylor? That seems like a perfect example, maybe some of what you're 
talking about. Yes, and actually there is even more emphasis in the university, in, the, in some of the professions, and this is why we've had the, the rise of uh, professional ethics in many universities, mm-hmm. is that, wait a minute, we can't just teach technique, for example, in medicine. We need to teach, uh, we need to address these larger ethical issues about what does it mean, you know, what is health, for example, in medicine? What does it mean to be a, you know, a fully human person? And so this is why we need these um, courses in ethics in various professions. Now, you know, we're interested in this here at Baylor because, you know, the intersection of faith and learning is, you know, a key foundation of who we are and something that intrigues people here. But do you find that kind of interest if you go to Southern Cal or, or if you go to University of Missouri or any random state school across the country? Uh, unfortunately, in the surveys that I've looked at, state schools are particularly uh, have a hard time addressing this issue. Mm-hmm. Even the faculty report and faculty surveys that know my institution does not uh, value addressing issues about character formation or uh, civic formation. And so it's lo- often it's private schools, some, many of them uh, Christian, but also some secular ones as well mm-hmm. uh, that give attention to this. And this is not to say that some state schools do not. This is not to say that some state schools don't address these issues, but uh, the schools that really give it a lot of attention tend to be private colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that some secular schools are looking at what it means to, you know, be more human or to have a good moral foundation. Well, you gave, a, I think Yale, you mentioned, has examined that. And I know they started out in a Christian tradition, but are there any secular schools that you look at now that say, you know, maybe we might not agree on everything, but they're working towards this? Uh, yes, there's actually been a study, I mean, for example, a study on this called Educating Citizens, in which they cite a number of schools. But the, cat, the service academies would be um, a good example. Air mm-hmm. Force Academy, service before self is their motto, and we'd uh, examined their program. They have an extensive system of character education. You've obviously given this issue a lot of thought, you and your co-author. And when you think of what it means to educate someone to be fully human, or as fully human education as a university you know, can reasonably thought to give. What, what does that definition mean to you? Um, well, actually, we'll talk about the proposal we made. One of the things we note is that general education does not address many of these issues. Now, some schools do maybe have a required course in ethics, but we propose that general education should not just be a sampling of different parts of knowledge. That's, a, in our minds, almost a little bit outdated and not very helpful. We think general education in all of its various courses should address this question about what does it mean to be a good human being and you do that by addressing different areas about which my friend talked about he didn't learn in higher education for example what does it mean to have a good marriage Um, one scholar talks about the university doesn't tell you how to spend your money that's one of the most important moral issues Mm -hmm. uh, there is out there not that the university should tell you but at least should help you think about critically I mean what is it you know what does it mean to be a good steward of my finances of the environment um, these sorts of things well, you know, I think, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this quote, the uh, the C.S. Lewis quote about, uh, um, you know, you can have a lot of knowledge without a religious foundation. It makes man a more a more clever devil. Do you know the, uh, the, yes, the quote I know, I know what you're, I'm um, referring to? Oh, I can't. Um, and actually, the John Hopkins University professor uh, mentions this in his defense of character education in the university says you don't just want cunning sophists. In other words, Mm -hmm. people who know how to reason, but reason for the wrong, you know, to try and defend evil or bad things. You want people who can uh, use reason uh, for the good. And, you know, you talk about, too, the idea of, you know, while we can't all agree on, 
you know, basic guiding principles, but, you know, you mentioned marriage and finances. It does seem like maybe it's a basic thing, but you can have all this great knowledge, but if the rest of your life is in shambles, it's probably not going to be, even if you're successful at your job, maybe it's not going to be applied as well as if you did have a more, you know, a more structured social life, a more, a sound home, you know, things like that. Yes, I mean, I, th- I mean, and also really one of the challenges, at least you know, in my life, is I, all these competing goods. You know, I'm trying to be maybe a good father, or a good husband, a good professor, a good friend, a good neighbor, a good citizen. How in the world do I fit all this together and prioritize? And if colleges aren't places where you talk about that, then where do you talk about um, balancing these kind of com- competing goods that we all face in life? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, college, for example, general education curriculum should be a place where you help students work through uh, these competing goods that you'll face later in life. You think it's something that, you know, you talk about your suggestion, should each professor try and work a little bit of that into his or her class, or is, you know, a specific ethics course that goes along with uh, each major? Do you have different ideas about that? Yes, I would say, I mean, certainly it it would be difficult to work it into er every course. I think uh, certainly every course will probably address some issue about what it means to be a good professional in this field. Um, but I think a general education in particular, and then also the co-curricular area, mm-hmm. we usually call these um, people are in charge of student development. Well, what does it mean to be a fully developed student or a fully developed human being? Student development is also a place where those sorts of issues should be addressed. What would you hope that if people read your book or even just hearing this interview, what would you hope that they really take away from it? If you could really imprint one idea in their minds, what would that be or one general thought? That's a great question. I really, I think what I would want to encourage them is to look for an education that is going to ad- help you become more fully human. It's not just going to train you to be a good professional. And I would encourage also colleges and universities to have the courage to try to address these larger questions about what does it mean to be a flourishing human being or to be, have a flourishing society versus just focusing on narrow technical professional questions. It's funny because it seems like the idea of, well, what is a human being might have a pretty basic answer, but uh, it can get into some really deep uh, discussions, you know, amongst you and your friends or amongst you and other academics. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes we don't don't agree on what it means to be an animal or we don't agree upon what it means to be fully human. And those are great sources of conversation, not not just in a philosophy class, but in life in general. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I realize you're not a... uh, college uh, guidance admittance counselor or anything like that but I'll ask like you know if there's there's parents out there maybe they've got a sophomore or a junior in high school who is uh, th- who's thinking about college and you know like uh, you know for instance I know my uh, cousin you know they couldn't afford Baylor they did two years at MCC and then you know then did Baylor parents who are balancing um you know, who are balancing financial concerns about, you know, you know whether you know, it's a whole lot cheaper not to go to Baylor, as we all know that, or other schools across the country. Do you have any ideas, that th- things they might want to really look into and think about as they're talking, you know, talking over the college decision with their kids? Because I think a lot of parents listening right now would like their kids to get that moral foundation or at least have that po- as a possibility. Well, like my, well my, my father's response when he read this book was, wow, I didn't realize colleges and universities were in such bad shape. And actually, that's... I thought about that. I thought, wow, did I really, was that the message I want to communicate? But I do want uh, parents to be, to realize that the trend in colleges and universities around the nation is that you, 
they're not interested as much in the moral dimension of life. They are not interested in creating, you know, the good human being and addressing that issue. They're more interested in creating good professionals and making sure your son or daughter contribute after they graduate and things mm-hmm. like that. So I think I do want parents to realize that and that to choose wisely the college or university where your son or daughter may attend. And perhaps if you choose a university that maybe doesn't address those questions, um, but as long as you do that in full knowledge, um, mm-hmm. I'd want them to understand that as well. Well, you know, it's interesting, too. You've talked about how, you know, we started out with this very noble goal of educating, you know, complete, you know, morally fulfilled human beings, morally uh, actualized, self-actualized human beings. And then it became more vocational. Now we're even seeing for-profit institutions. Is it just kind of a natural progression away from that a little bit? Not that any one of them are bad, but are we seeing a natural progression sort of away from the more noble kind of lofty goals that we saw in the 1700s, 1800s? Absolutely. I think a lot of uh, secular professors, I would say, they lament the demise of humanities. The the number of humanities courses are shrinking, but they don't realize that often it stems back from the loss of moral mission of the college and universities. And if you lose a larger vision for college and universities, and it only becomes, oh, we want to form good professionals, then of course you're going to have other for-profit colleges and universities come along and say, oh, we can do that as well as you do. I mean, why pay all that money? And I agree. Why pay all that money if all a college and university is doing is seeking to perform, you know, to train you to be a good professional and not a good human being. 